Have you ever failed to make amends for a debt? Well, one such person did by the name of Robert. Robert had borrowed a book from the public library when he was in high school. And he had misplaced this book and failed to return it. Forty-seven years later, he found this book and brought it back to his local public library, having a fine of $171.32. Wondering what the book was? It was the Prince of Egypt. He commented, I figured I'd better get it in before we waited another 10 years. After all, 57 years would be quite embarrassing. The librarian who received the long overdue book remarked, it's never too late to bring in and return your books. Debt. Debt is a reality that we often face in this world. And if you're familiar with the scriptures, the Bible often likens our guilt before God as a debt of sin before God. In fact, You may be familiar with a prayer, a prayer that I prayed earlier this morning. We commonly call it the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive what? Our debtors. Our guilt before God is often likened to a debt. And that's what we find here in this, uh, what's called in your English translations, at least in the New American Standard, the guilt offering. It's how you pay a debt before God and also an encouragement and a mandate to pay your debts towards other people that you have accumulated. This is, a, uh, uh, this is on the heels of uh, the different offerings we've been looking at through the book of Leviticus. And so just a little bit by way of review where we've been in the book of Leviticus. We started in chapter 1 with the what's called the burnt offering, the whole burnt offering. I like to call it the ascension offering. The, the primary focus of this offering in chapter 1 was atonement, was the, the sinner individually coming before God and making atonement for his sins with this animal sacrifice. And then secondly, in chapter two, we looked at the tribute offering, the grain offering, the only non-bloody offering in which this was a kind of gift before the Lord where the sinner was coming in obeisance, in homage and devotion to the Lord and giving a gift to the Lord, symbolizing that he is subjecting himself to the Lord. And then in chapter 3, we looked at the peace offering. And this was unique amongst all the offerings because it was the one offering that the worshiper could come and eat and partake of. In fact, he could even invite his family members. And this peace offering was a kind of communal meal that was a celebration of the peace and reconciliation that had been brought forth in the burnt offering or the ascension offering. And then the fourth offering we looked at in chapters 4 and in part of chapter 5 is the purification offering or the sin offering, or you might even call it the de-sin offering. 
And this was a, a, a very bloody offering because this is the one offering where blood was to be splattered all over the veil. Blood was to be smeared on the horns of the altar. It was, it was, it, blood was being splattered and sprinkled everywhere with this kind of offering. And this offering in particular, it was not only to cleanse or to purify the sinner, but also to cleanse and to purify the tabernacle and then later on the temple. It was to, to clean out God's space because of the infectiveness nature of sin okay and so uh, in a very real sense this this de-sin offering that we looked at last week was in many ways a, a kind of medical picture we think of infecting other people with our you know viruses and diseases and things like this well sin has an infecting nature well this sin that this offering that we're going to look at today it covers uh, the sections from 514 to 6-7 is uh, what I like to call the restitution offering, or in your English translation, the guilt offering. And, and I think one of the reasons why it's better to call it the restitution offering, because it focuses in on the debt of guilt that stands between sinners and sinners, and the debt of guilt that stands between man and God. In Numbers chapter 5 and verse 7, this word that's translated guilt offering is translated restitution when it says that then he shall confess his sins which he has committed and he shall make restitution in full for his wrong and add to it one-fifth of it and give it to him whom he has wronged. So this is the restitution offering. And I want us to learn three important principles from this restitution offering to bring you into close relationship with God and with others. The first is to realize your guilt before God. Notice with me in verse 14. Then the Lord, that's God's covenant name, Yahweh, spoke to Moses saying, and by the way, that phrase, then the Lord spoke to Moses, that, that signals a, a kind of new section in the book of Leviticus. It's often how Moses communicates that this is a kind of a new section. So then the Lord spoke to Moses. So this is direct revelation from the Lord to Moses saying, verse 15, if a person acts unfaithfully and sins unintentionally against the Lord's holy things. So, Notice how this particular sin is described. It's described as unfaithfulness. And I think unfaithfulness is a good translation. Uh, some of your translations may say a breach of faith or a breach of trust. That's okay. But I like the translation of unfaithfulness because this is a word that is used in the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 5, to communicate uh, the same idea when a, when a husband suspects that his wife has been unfaithful to him in the covenant relationship of marriage. And so this unfaithfulness, this, this offering is in the context when one has been unfaithful to the Lord in their covenant relationship with him. And this is important because it highlights as most of these offerings do, how sinful we actually are. Because think of it, if you were about to enter into the marriage covenant with someone and they promised that they were going to be faithful to you 
95% of the time. How would you respond to that promise? Mm, I think I'll pass. And yet, so often in our lives, in our covenant relationship with the Lord, we are unfaithful to him. And so this offering is specific to this covenant unfaithfulness to the Lord. But then notice what sin is mentioned here. This is a sin that we often wouldn't think as infidelity. It's an unintentional sin. You didn't even mean to do this. You didn't intend to do it. And yet this still brings guilt that needs to be dealt with. Anyone who sins unintentionally against, notice verse 15, the Lord's holy things. What is this talking about? Well, the Lord's holy things, if you were to trace that word throughout the book of Leviticus and throughout the first five books of the Bible, you would discover that it often refers to, uh, to the, the sacrifices and sometimes to the dishes and sometimes to the clothing of the priest. This was, this was the, the special holy stuff that was to be devoted to the Lord. And so this is a person who unintentionally sins by taking or using that which belonged only to Yahweh God. Uh, maybe an example of this would be, uh, we mentioned earlier, the peace offering. Part of the offering went to the priest. Part of the offering, the fat, especially in the kidneys, was to be burned on the altar. And part of it went to the worshiper who brought the sacrifice. Well, imagine if, you know, you got your portion, you started chowing down on you know, your barbecued section, and, and all of a sudden you realize that you bit into some of the fat that was to be burned on the altar to the Lord. And you start chomping down, mm, this tastes good. And you realize, oh no, this was the Lord's portion. And you didn't mean to do it, but nonetheless you did it, and you broke covenant relationship with the Lord and you're guilty, what do you do then? We see this particular sin and you think, well, this, you know, I've never experienced anything like this. I mean, what kind of holy hardware do we have today? But think about the context as new covenant believers. What are some of the things in the New Testament that are regarded as holy or to be devoted to the Lord that we often are unfaithful and take that which belongs to God or use that which God has given to us in an unfaithful way for sinful purposes. Well, let me help you out. Remember Romans chapter 12 and verse one and two. Therefore I urge you brothers in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice unto the Lord, holy and pleasing. This is your acceptable offer of worship. And then it goes on in verse two to say, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may approve that which is good 
and acceptable? In other words, our minds, our thinking, our bodies are to be devoted to the Lord, to be regarded as holy as an offering unto the Lord. And when we infect our thinking and our believing with sinful and worldly ideologies, we're taking that which belongs to the Lord, namely our minds, our hearts, our bodies, and devoting them to sinful purposes. And we're breaching our covenant relationship with the Lord. And it needs to be atoned for. How about some other things? How about 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 through 20? It says, flee sexual immorality. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. That our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. We often cite that verse, you know, as a proof text You shouldn't smoke cigarettes or something like that. But the context is in relationship to sexual immorality. The Corinthians were having relations with prostitutes. And the apostle Paul grabs them by their ears and says, don't you know that your body is a temple to be devoted to the Lord and you're using it for these sinful, wicked purposes? You are not your own. You've been purchased. You've been bought with a price. Your body belongs to Yahweh God. It's holy. It's to be devoted to him. We see something similar in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 and 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that namely that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Our bodies are to be devoted to the Lord, not to be used for sinful purposes. And of course, we live in a world, a cesspool of a world that's inundated with sexual immorality and applauds every sexual perversion. But God says, no, my people are to be devoted to me. And that's a debt that we accumulate before God when we steal and take that which belongs to God and use it for sinful, illicit purposes. But also, how about God's glory? All the glory in the universe belongs to God. He is the one who is to be honored. He is the one who is to be praised. And often, we want the appreciation. We want the accolades. We want the pat on the back. As if we were able to generate virtues from ourselves. No, anything good in you, my friend, ultimately came from God, the Holy Spirit, who produced that fruit in you. So don't rob the glory from God. In fact, there's a story that's told uh, during the revivals in Wales in 1859. There was a, a preacher by the name of David Morgan. And he was walking along with this older minister and and. Uh, David had been preaching all night long and 
And this older minister said, it, it seems like we had such a blessed time. And David says, yes, it was a blessed time, but I think the Lord would give us such great things if he could only trust us. The older minister was puzzled. He said, what do you mean if the Lord could trust us? He says, if he could trust us not to steal the glory for ourselves, then perhaps more people would be converted. And then the minister cries out, not unto us, not unto us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory. We sometimes try to steal the glory from God, but it's to be devoted to him. So the first step in a close relationship with God is to realize the guilt. But then even continuing on back in chapter 5 and verse 17, here's another sin that's mentioned. Now, if a person sins and does any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, though he was unaware, still he is guilty and shall bear the punishment. And so here is what, uh, another what we might call unintentional sin. So here's a person who realizes sometime later that he has sinned against the Lord. Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, told directly by Yahweh God, says he's still guilty, even if he was unaware. And again, friends, this teaches us the objective nature of sin. Sin does not become sin when your conscience smotes you, but it's sin already. It's just you've become aware of it. And again, this is very important in our day and age of moral relativism. We need to understand that sin is an objective reality before God. Chapter 5 and verse 19. He says, It is a guilt offering for certainly for he was certainly guilty before the Lord. Drop your eyes down to 6, 1 and 2. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, when a person sins and acts unfaithfully against the Lord. Again, same language here. But notice, he's unfaithful to the Lord even when he's sinning against his brother. In this instance, he's, he's deceived his companion in regard to a deposit or a security entrusted to him so this is talking about financial dealings with another person a person has maybe given him a down payment on something you know his neighbor say he's he's selling his lawnmower to his neighbor and uh you know lawnmower costs a hundred dollars he gives a down payment of twenty dollars and then he's going to give maybe ten dollars each month over the course of the next x amount of months and he goes to make that first payment and says, okay, now I, I've given you $30. It's $30. What do you mean? I gave you a $20 down payment. I don't remember. I don't remember that. He's deceiving. He's conning. He's conning his neighbor out of the deposit. God sees it. 
The second part of verse 2, the, or through robbery, or if he has extorted his command. So in this instance, he's just taken money. So we've obviously moved out of the realm of unintentional sins to very intentional sins, right? He's taken that which does not belong to him. He's broken the eighth commandment. He's stolen something. Or here's a situation he's extorted from his companion. He's strong-armed money. He's made threats to try to get money from this person. Or how about verse 3? He's found what was lost and lied about it and sworn falsely so that, he re, so that he sins in regard to any one of the things a man may do. So he says, he finds something. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Na, 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 na. No, that's not a biblical ethic. It's not finders, keepers, losers, weepers. That belong to somebody. It's not yours. You know, this often happens amongst young people in the household. Well, you know, they see a candy bar lying around and they grab it and start eating it. That's mine. I didn't know. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. No. That candy bar belonged to somebody and you stole it. So, friend, all of this is pressing home the realization of guilt and debt, the realization of our sin. And again, let, let me remind you that even uh, when we came to 6-2, when a person sins and acts unfaithfully against the Lord and deceives his neighbor, and he mentions all these sins that are what we might call horizontal sins against our neighbor, he's saying this was unfaithfulness to the Lord as well. God has seen it. And so, friend, let me pointedly ask you, do you realize your guilt before God? Have you been shady in your financial dealings with other people? Have you stolen from others? Have you stolen time in the workplace, using workplace hours for your own personal whatever? Are you using time on the clock to check your social media site? See how many likes you had on the last post? It's a form of stealing. And have you numbed your conscience by saying, well, everybody does it. But is that the standard of righteousness? Because everybody does it? Or are you called to be devoted to the Lord? I think you're called to be devoted to the Lord. Are you lying on your tax returns? No. I'm all for paying as little to Uncle Sam as possible in an honest way. Okay? In an honest way, I don't like what so much of the government does with my tax dollars. 
But nonetheless, the Bible is fairly clear. Render tax to whom tax is due. Jesus says, give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. You don't have to give more. You don't have to make it a charity operation. But you do need to give your due. And again, this is, this is the first step back into right relationship with other and right relationship with God is realizing your own guilt. Realizing your guilt before God. You see, if you don't realize that, then you're not going to be able to be in right relationship. I mean, think, I mean, we all have people in our lives who, who seemingly can do no wrong, right? And anytime there's a conflict, they are never the guilty party. And, and what does that do for your relationship with them? They've never owned up to, to a pile of sins they've done against you. Are you able to have a close relationship with them? You're not. It's impossible. They've never realized their guilt. And think about our guilt before God. Would they think of the prodigal son who, who thumbed his nose up at his father and, and took his inheritance and ran with it and squandered it? Would he ever have come back to his father had he not recognized, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight? Will you take me back even just as a servant? He would never come back had he not realized his guilt. Or think of the parable that Jesus gives of the two men who went up to the temple to pray and one of them was a tax collector and the other was a Pharisee and the Pharisee, he's unable to realize his own guilt. He only sees his own righteousness and he says, oh God, I thank you that I'm not like those other people there. That I'm not unjust, I'm not a swindler, I'm not an adulterer. Oh God, don't forget that I, I, I pay a tithe of all that I get, get. And I fast twice a week. He doesn't see his guilt before God. But you remember the tax collector. He's beating on his chest. He's unwilling even to look up to heaven because he sees his own sin. He's not comparing himself with others. He's begging God for mercy. He says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You remember what Jesus said? It was that man, the tax collector, who went home forgiven rather than the other. What was the difference? He realized his debt before God. He realized his guilt. Friend, have you ever come to that posture of the tax collector where you see the weight of your guilt before God and you cry out, oh God, forgive me, and you've entrusted your eternity to the Lord Jesus? My friend, if you've never done that, you're not forgiven of your sins. You're still carrying that burden of guilt on your back like pilgrim and pilgrim's progress and it's weighing you down and you need to roll it off onto the Lord Jesus. Roll on to Christ. Don't delay. He wants you to roll your guilt on his back. But friend, you need to realize your guilt.
Remember, it's not the healthy who need a physician. It's the sick. It's not the righteous who need a savior. It's sinners. But not only to realize your guilt, repent and make restitution for your guilt. We see this in the next section in each of these three situations of sin. Check in chapter 5 and verse 15, the second part of verse 15. It says, then he shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord, a ram without defect according to the valuation in silver by shekels in terms of the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. We see something similar in chapter 6 in verse 4. It says, Then it shall be when he sins and becomes guilty that he shall restore what he took by robbery or what he got by extortion or the deposit which was entrusted to him or the lost thing which he found or anything about which he swore falsely, he shall make restitution for it in full and add to it one-fifth more. He shall give it to the one to whom it belongs on the day he presents his guilt offering. The instructions are clear. He is to make amends by paying back whatever he owed in whatever way he defrauded somebody or in whatever way he had stolen before the Lord. It's, it's, it's to be according to the shekel of the sanctuary, according to the current currency of the sanctuary. But not only that, he's to give one-fifth more, so it has to be 120% he's to pay back. Now, if you're familiar with Old Testament law, you may remember some instances in which sometimes twice the amount was required or sometimes four or five times the amount of something that was stolen was, was to be paid back. For instance, in Exodus chapter 22 in verse 1, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or, or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. So in that instance, it was sometimes five times, sometimes four times, but here it's 120%. We say, what's the difference? It seems to me the best way to harmonize those two passages, which Moses himself was the author of. In fact, I would argue that that passage in Exodus 2 is really one part of one book, the entire Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So is Moses giving different stipulations here? I think the best way of harmonizing it is the fourfold or fivefold penalty is if you get caught. But the 120% is if you come to the realization yourself and you turn yourself in, okay? There's a difference. There's a stiffer punishment, a stiffer restitution if you get caught in the misdeed rather than owning up to it yourself. So this would have been an incentive for you to own up to it on your own rather than get caught. It was an incentive to bypass the, all that would have been required with the law courts and the, and the judicial hearing and all that if you just own up to it. 
And, and we get that today, you know, often where there's a plea deal, there's a pleading of guilty, there's a lesser punishment, even in today's law courts. Well, what do you do if, what would they do if, if you weren't able to make restitution to the person? Numbers chapter 5, verse 5 through 11 says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel when a man or a woman commits any any of the sins of mankind acting unfaithfully against the Lord, that person is guilty. Then he shall confess his sins which he has committed. He shall make restitution in full for the wrong and add to it one-fifth of it and give it to him whom he has wronged. So that's every, that's the same as what we see here in, in Leviticus 5 and 6. Verse 8, but if the man has no relative to whom, make re- to, to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution which is made for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest, besides the ram of the atonement by which atonement is made for him, and also every contribution pertaining to all the holy gifts of the sons of Israel which they offer to the priest shall be his. So every man's holy gift shall be his. Whatever any man gives to the priest, it shall become his. So if there was no, so step two, if, if, if you couldn't repay the person, you try to pay back a relative. Step three, if there's no relatives, then you give it to the priest, give it to the Lord. And so this was the procedure that God had given through Moses how to demonstrate repentance, okay? How to be brought back in the right relationship between God and your neighbor. Restitution was required. Restitution doesn't pay for sin, but it's a demonstration of a change of heart attitude before God and before others. It is the fruit of repentance. And if restitution is not made, there's reason to question whether repentance is genuine. I mean, think with me for a moment. Imagine... You save up some money month after month, week after week. You, you don't have your own car. You've been taking the WRTA to work or catching rides from neighbors. And, but you're saving up, up money each week, each paycheck. You're setting aside money to pay for a car. You finally save enough, of, enough money and you go to the used car lot and you buy a car. I mean, it's not a Mercedes-Benz, but it's yours. And you've done earned it. And then you wake up one morning to go to work, and your car's not there. And on your way running to the WRTA bus station, You see your neighbor driving your car. And you ain't happy. You are livid. And the next day, your neighbor comes to you and says, "Um, I'm really sorry about stealing your car. It, It was wrong for me to do that. And you're still not happy, but you know how much you've been forgiven by the Lord, and so you're ready to extend mercy and grace and forgiveness to your neighbor. 
And uh, just almost immediately after he gets the confession out of his mouth and he, he pulls the keys out of his pocket and he starts walking back to your car and puts the keys in the ignition of your car and he drives off. What kind of relationship are you going to be able to have with your neighbor? Oh, but he said, I'm sorry. Yeah, he said he's sorry, but he didn't make restitution. He didn't give back what he stole. He didn't pay you for the, the, the day's wages or the, the, the reprimand that you had from your employer for being late that day for work. He didn't make it right. In the same way, friends, you can have the realization of guilt, but if you don't genuinely repent and manifest that repentance with restitution, then the relationship's still sour. There's still stuff between you and the other person. You may be hearing this and say, Matt, well, that's Old Testament stuff. You know, we're, we're under grace in the New Testament. Remember Luke the physician, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. He tells a story about a wee little man. You sung about him maybe in Sunday school. A wee little man and a wee little man was he. His name was Zacchaeus. He was a miserly man. He was an Ebenezer Scrooge. If there ever was an Ebenezer Scrooge, he was not only a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector. He was the guy who skimmed money off of the low-level tax collectors, and he was filthy rich, living high off the hog, extorting money from his fellow Hebrews. And he had a guilty conscience. And he had heard stories of this Jesus who forgives sinners. And he was weighed down with this heavy load of guilt upon his back. And he had heard that this Jesus was coming through Jericho. And he sought this Jesus out. But he was a wee little man. And he couldn't see over the crowd. And you remember how that wee little man abased himself in seeking Jesus? As a grown man, he climbed a tree. When's the last time you climbed a tree? And he climbed up that tree because he needed to see a view of Jesus. But Jesus already saw him. And before he could even call out for Jesus, Jesus calls out for him. Says Zacchaeus, dinner, eight o'clock, your house tonight. Can you imagine Zacchaeus weighed down by his guilt, overwhelmed that Jesus knew his name and sought him out? 
And do you remember Zacchaeus repented? And how did Jesus know he repented? Because Jesus says, truly this man is a son of Abraham, which would have been music to this man's ears who had been an outcast and considered outside of God's covenant people his entire life. He said, this man is a son of Abraham and truly today salvation has come to this man's house. How did Jesus know? Because Zacchaeus said, I'm going to give half of all that I own to the poor and I'm going to pay back, what was it, fivefold anything I've stolen from anybody else. He was demonstrating true repentance by making restitution for how he had defrauded others out of money. Now, last I checked, the gospel of Luke was in the New Testament. Now, we may not bring rams. We may not slit the throats of lambs. But the principle still abides. How about this one? Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there at the altar. Go first. Be reconciled to your brother. Then come and bring your offering. What's the principle? Your relationships, your beefs with other people affects your relationship with God. It's the same principle of the guilt offering. That we need to pursue reconciliation. Sometimes it's even if just we know that somebody has something against us. Sometimes it's when we've sinned against somebody else. Either way, make it right. Make amends. Make restitution. This is even packed into the Lord's Prayer. I mentioned it earlier at the, in the introduction. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 12. The assumption, forgive us our debts, coming to God seeking forgiveness assumes you've been forgiving in your relationship towards others. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are our debtors. Again, the assumption is You come to God in right relationship because you've sought right relationships with other people. And if you haven't been forgiving towards other people, why would you expect God to be forgiving towards you? So my friend, again, I ask you, do you have any Conscious controversy with another person that you need to make right. That you need to own up to your own guilt and you need to go beyond that and make restitution. Maybe it's just owning up to your own guilt or maybe there's some financial dealings that that need to be paid back. Maybe there's something you need to do to make it right. Do it. Don't delay Don't put it off. Have you hardened your conscience? 
I remember some years ago, a friend of mine, he had lived quite a wicked, debauched life before he had become a believer. And uh, he came to me the one day and he said, I haven't slept in days. I said, what's, what's going on? He said, I, I remembered I, 15 years ago, I, I stole a motorcycle in Phoenix, Arizona. And after several days of this weighing on my conscience, I called the Phoenix Police Department. And I owned up to it. The officer I spoke to looked in his computer. I gave him the make and model of the motorcycle I had stolen, trying to sift through who had motorcycles stolen, that make and model. He said that year there was 500 motorcycles stolen. Well, my friend said, well, what do I do? The officer said, repent. And he did. He actually had already repented. The very fact he was calling him and was willing to own up to what he had done because it was weighing him down. He knew he needed to make it right. Now all this needs to be governed by prudence and wisdom. But wherever we become conscious and aware of ways we have defrauded and wronged others, we need to seek to make it right. It is the fruit of genuine repentance. But not only do we need to realize our guilt, repent, and restitute, but also thirdly and most importantly, We need to rest in the offering that's provided. Notice the language here in 516, the second part of 516. It says, then the the priest shall then make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering and it will be forgiven him. Notice verse 18 Then he is to bring to the priest a ram without defect from the flock, according to the valuation for the guilt offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning the heir, which he sinned unintentionally and did not know it. And here's the promise, and it will be forgiven him. Chapter 6 and verse 6, then he shall bring to the priest his guilt offering to the Lord, a ram without defect from the flock, according to the valuation for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he will be forgiven for any one of the things which he has done to incur guilt. We see the promise given three times over making atonement, forgiveness. And it was the same procedure that was outlined with the sin offering where the sinner would lay his hand, this time on the ram. The throat of the ram would be slit. The lamb would be butchered up. And the parts divided between priest and the Lord 
and atonement was made. Forgiveness was promised. But you see, you would have to keep coming back again and again. I mean, think of it. Some of this were for unintentional sins that you become aware of against the Lord sometime later. Some of this was for taking that which was holy and making common use of it. I already mentioned to you the new covenant passages, namely your body is holy, God's to get all the glory, all of that. How many times do we sin in that way? And friend, you can never make enough restitution before the Lord. And so what does God do? Well, under the Old Testament economy, he gave this promise, and this promise was pictured in these rams. There was the promise of forgiveness of sins, and and God was able to apply the work of Jesus backwards, but now we see that that ram ultimately is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. He becomes the guilt offering. He becomes the one who pays the debt of our guilt before God that you and I could never pay back him all the debt we owe. And so, friend, you can come before God pressing your hand upon the Lord Jesus to pay your debt of guilt. Friend, have you done that? This is how you deal with your guilt before God. Restitution, atonement has been provided. God himself has brought the ram. And I know some of you, uh, some of you have a, 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 a hyperactive conscience. What's the solution? What's the cure for a hyperactive conscience? Rest in the ram of the Lord Jesus. Rest that that payment has been made that you are free from your guilt, that the promise of Romans 8.1 is now yours to claim. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation because you are in Christ Jesus, because Jesus has paid the price for your guilt. Martin Luther, in his commentary on Galatians, says this, If you are bruised with this hammer, talking about the hammer of the law, the guilt, all God's standards that pound and pound, if you are bruised with this hammer, do not use this bruising perversely so that you may load yourself with more laws. Don't try, in other words, he's saying, don't don't try to self-atone. But listen, listen to the voice of Christ. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. 
And when the law, Luther continues, when the law oppresses you so that everything seems utterly desperate and thus drives you to Christ for help, then the law is performing its true function. This is the best and most perfect use of the law. The law's true function then is to show us our sins, to make us guilty, to humble us, to kill us, to be brought down to hell finally to take away all help and comfort in and of ourselves, yet holy in order that we may be justified, exalted, brought to life, and carried up to heaven and obtaining everything good. And again, this only happens as we come to Christ who beckons us to come. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest of a conscience that has been cleansed by the Lord Jesus. The prophet Isaiah spoke of this. In fact, it's fascinating. In Isaiah 53 in verse 10, it says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him. This is a prophecy related to the future Messiah, the suffering servant. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself, here it is, as a guilt offering, a restitution offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. In the most explicit way, the prophet Isaiah says, Jesus has become our guilt offering. He said it 700 years before Jesus was even born. And there he is our Savior on the cross. Look to him who's suspended between heaven and earth. Look to him who cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Look to him amidst the utter blackness of darkness that fell over the face of the earth for three hours as he bore in his body the guilt of hell that you and I deserve. Go to him, my friend. Go to him and find rest for your heavy-laden conscience and mercy from our great high priest. Let's pray.